Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. to be home. I've been away for a month and uh, um, every year in October I go teach in Europe for one month. So uh, it was kind of a special trip this year because last year when I was there Karina was pregnant. So this year we got to go back to all the old places where we were last year imagining what it would be like to be there with a baby. A crawling baby. We forgot about that. Um, <coughs> the first week we were in Copenhagen, which might be my favorite city. And uh, this is the ninth year that I've taught uh, an intensive in Copenhagen. And the best part is that almost all the same people are still there. So uh, it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and uh, <coughs> in Copenhagen, our favorite place is this 200-year-old uh, co-ed sauna. And Karina is Finnish, so whenever we get to a city, she goes and tries to find the sauna. Uh, so this one, we, we, we would go there at 4 o'clock before anyone got there, and we would take the baby. And then we would just take turns going back and forth. But this one night we went there, there were so many kind people. So uh, naked people just took Olin, <laughs> and he just got passed around. It's really beautiful. Yeah. And um, uh, then uh, we went to Dublin, and uh, I taught a workshop in Dublin. We also had a night, uh, a premiere of the reactor film there, which was really fun. And... Um, it rained and it was cold. Um, so uh, I just walked around a lot with Olin on my chest. And I got into this art project where I started taking pictures of doorknobs. <laughs> and uh, I, I would go out with him for hours and just take pictures of doorknobs. And then I remembered one day while we were out that uh, Trinity College Library, which is famous for having the Book of Kells, also has my favorite yoga text, the Yoga Vasishta, the original, uh, illustrated, the only known copy of it. So I, I went to Trinity College Library with Olin to go find it. And uh, then we got there and he peed through his diaper. <laughs> and so I was carrying, but I didn't have any diapers because I wasn't planning on going. 
And so I was just completely drenched. And it was like a mix of sweat and rain and pee. And uh, I never got to see the book. Um, but uh, by the time we got home, we were both dry. So that's my memory of Dublin. Um, then we went to um, uh, Antibes in the south of France. No. Then we went to Vienna. Vienna was fantastic. Um, we didn't go to a single restaurant the whole time we were there. Uh, after I taught, I would go home and we would all walk to the farmer's market. In every city we were in, we could find a farmer's market. This is an amazing thing. And, uh, and then we would cook three meals a day. But we would make the three meals all dinner. So we would make one big meal at dinner, and then that would be what Karina and Olin would eat while I was teaching. Uh, but it was an amazing rhythm. I think this might be the best thing anybody can do for a relationship, is cook and eat three meals a day together with people you love. This is almost impossible in our driven world. So uh, that's what we did. We cooked a lot, and we made really good food. And it was really easy to find good food. Um, And there were two dogs in the apartment where we stayed. Olin loved the dogs. And uh, then uh, after that, we went to Antibes. And it was so nice after those northern cities to go to a place where it was really sunny. And the light was so beautiful all the time. Um, but then, of course, the second day we got there, it rained. It was the only day it rained. But we had this amazing day. Someone said, do you want to use our car? So we said, okay. So we got in the car. We had no idea where we were going. We just knew there was the sea. And if we go in the opposite direction, there's the Pyrenees. So we just drove. And the weather got worse and worse. And then Olin fell asleep and had probably the longest nap he's ever had, like two and a half hours. And it was cloudy, and you couldn't see anything. But we were just listening to the car tires and the motor and the rain. And it was really beautiful. It was being completely lost. Um, and um, now we're home. That was the trip. But also the students were fantastic. Every workshop was full. Everywhere I went, I knew people. And uh, it was a, a real blessing. So I'm so glad to be here. Uh, somewhat jet-lagged, because it's the middle of the night. <laughs> or it's the morning or something. I don't know. Um, I'm 50% domestic and 50% nomadic. So putting the two together is a really good combination. So I feel like our family should just go on the road for a couple of years. Um, but I don't know if the baby would like that. So, oh, he got his first tooth, which is a strange and beautiful thing. I'm glad I never have to get tooth teeth again. Not out of my own mouth. Um, so uh, for the next few weeks, I want to talk about mindfulness. Uh, in the circles that I move in after iPhone, mindfulness is the most popular word. Um, what is mindfulness? It seems to be taking over everything. Medicine, education, business, and 
now there are books on mindfulness and golf. (laughs) I'd like to explore for a few weeks uh, the tradition that mindfulness comes out of and the way mindfulness is being translated in our culture. Mindfulness is really the chief factor in the Buddha's description of meditation. In the 1960s, when jet travel became much cheaper, Western people started going to Burma and Tibet and Japan and India and Thailand, and they started sitting with great meditation masters and learning the basic techniques of sitting still and meditating. And by the time the early 70s came around, those same masters were visiting America. And uh, people were acquiring land and building centers and running retreats. And mindfulness meditation was being taught uh, already in the mid-70s to thousands and thousands of people. Uh, Young people who were leaving America were dissatisfied with militarism, um, the rat race, and just the flatland world of modernity. So there were two things happening. There were uh, young people dropping out of university, going to sit in meditation practice, and then bringing those same teachers back over to the West to teach. And when Buddhist practice was brought to America, it wasn't so much uh, transplanted as it was translated. And I feel like we're still in this process of trying to translate these traditional practices uh, into our culture so they make sense in our lives. In 1979, John Kabat-Zinn, who is almost a household name, started translating meditation practice at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center. Uh, It proved a very effective way of reducing stress, managing pain, and as some of you might know, most of the first studies done on mindfulness were about uh, healing psoriasis. Uh, Slowly, mindfulness began making waves in the medical community, uh, and then especially in the field of psychotherapy. In psychotherapy, mindfulness first became popular because it was thought you could just teach mindfulness techniques to all of your patients and they'd all be cured. Um, Maybe some of that is true. But really, most of the research shows that the greatest effect of mindfulness in a clinical setting is the effect it has on the presence of the therapist. And this is really important, and we'll get to that later. But in psychotherapy, mindfulness is a method that helps reduce reactivity, um, and it creates a kind of uh, mutual presence for both people. That's really important. And now, as some of you know, and Lori could probably talk about a lot, uh, mindfulness is becoming incredibly popular in the education system. While mindfulness might seem like a very modern tool in the medical toolbox, it goes back 25 centuries at least. The Buddha focused all of his teachings 
around mindfulness. Sometimes I like to think that mindfulness is like the jewel at the center of the Buddha's teachings. And if you look through that jewel, you can see all the other teachings. In the four ennobling truths, um, which is a compression of all the Buddha's teachings, uh, embracing lack, uh, letting go of craving, uh, stopping, and acting, uh, this leads to a path that we all know is the Eightfold Path. Um, a path is something that's uh, more pragmatic in the Buddhist tradition than dogmatic. Uh, but right in the middle of that path, um, the seventh factor is mindfulness, uh, right mindfulness. For those of you who don't know the path, it's uh, seeing, speaking, acting, working, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. So mindfulness, samasati, is wedged right between effort and concentration. Um, in the early Pali Canon, in the Nikayas, which is a very early collection of the Buddha's teachings, there's this mnemonically terse formulaic style that the Buddha uses to talk about meditation practice. Um, we find that mindfulness is consistently defined by this fixed formula that repeats through all these texts. And, and this is how it goes. And what monks is appropriate mindfulness? Here, a monk dwells contemplating the body in the body, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world. She dwells contemplating feelings in feelings, contemplating mind in mind, contemplating phenomena in phenomena, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world. This is called appropriate mindfulness. You hear the repetition. Um, so uh, while we were away, uh, while I was teaching, I took with me two books. One is the Buddha's teachings and Nikayas, which I was reading, and the other was Salman Rushdie's new autobiography. I still don't know how they fit together, um, but it was good to go back and forth. And uh, something occurred to me as I was reading this, which is, he says, well, what is mindfulness? And then he tells you that mindfulness is clearly comprehending being mindful. So I wondered, well, how is he using these terms? What does it mean to define something by the thing you're defining it by? Um, the most influential text in the Pali Canon on the practice of mindfulness is called the Satipatthana Sutta. That's where this comes from, which means the discourse on the establishment of mindfulness. Um, and here the Buddha talks about what mindfulness is for and also how you can use it. So let me read to you how he describes it. Monks, which is you. This is the one-way path for the purification of beings, 
for overcoming sorrow and lamentation, for the passing away of pain and displeasure, for the achievement of the method, for the realization of Nibbana, that is, the four establishments of mindfulness. That's the Satipatthana. What for? Here, a monk dwells contemplating the body in the body. So what's meant by that is when you feel sensations in the body, just leave them as sensations in the body. It is a powerful practice. Most of us, when we think about the body, we think, oh, I'm this body, I'm that body, I'm a young body, I'm an old body, I'm an aching body, I'm a healthy body, I'm a tired body. He's saying when you feel sensations in the body, just leave them as sensations in the body. Feelings in feelings, mind in mind, phenomena in phenomena, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world, this monks is the one-way path for the purification of beings, for the realization of Nibbana, that is, the four establishments of mindfulness. So the Buddha is saying here that the, the method for awakening is the four satipatthanas. So first we bring mindfulness to the body, then we bring mindfulness uh, to feeling, then we bring mindfulness to the mind, and then we bring mindfulness to all phenomena. And the way the Buddha's teachings work is in that fourth foundation of mindfulness. So the first one is the breath in the body, the second one is feeling sensation, the third one is being mindful of mental states, and this fourth one is a very broad category, which he calls mindfulness of Dhamma, mindfulness of all phenomena. And when he teaches it, he takes all of his teachings and he arranges them in clusters, which it's helpful to think of sort of idea (coughs) clusters. And then he asks you to bring mindfulness to all of these clusters. So first he starts with the uh, hindrances, bringing mindfulness to all the hindrances, then mindfulness to the five skandhas, the five bundles, which I'm going to talk about next week, Uh, the six bases, the seven awakening factors, the four ennobling truths. So all in all, there's 108 different things that he wants you to bring mindfulness to. Um, He also uses a word uh, whenever he uses the term sati, Uh, Tana means ground. Uh, Sati is the word that is being translated as mindfulness. Um, In Sanskrit, the word is smrti. And whenever he uses that word, he uses it in the context of another word called anupasana or anupashana in Sanskrit. Anu means a repetition or closeness and Pasana or pasha is an eye. So it means to, to see closely or to return and see closely. So the way I translate this term is to look, to look again, and to look again, and to look again. Well, you see something, and then you look again, and then you look again, and you go on seeing. Whenever the Buddha uses sati, 
he talks about anupasana, and whenever he uses the term anupasana, he uses a refrain. Ardent, clearly comprehending, and mindful. In Indian psychology, predating the Buddha, and you find this in the Yoga Sutra, the word sati, or the Sanskrit word smriti, was a verb that meant to remember, to recall something. Um, That's why uh, Monier Williams, in his Sanskrit-English Dictionary, which all of you should have, defines smriti this way, remembrance, reminiscence, thinking upon, calling to mind, memory. So this is a very interesting dichotomy. So here, the definition of the term sati, that we're all thinking of as this you know, focused awareness, is actually calling something to mind and using one's memory, which in a way seems like the opposite of how we're normally taught meditation practice. The first, oh, so then I did a little bit of research. The first scholar who translated the term sati into the word mindfulness, thus creating the publishing business, um, was a great British translator named uh, T.W. Rhys Davis, and he was the founder of the Polytech Society. He was born in England, and uh, he became a lawyer And after his exams, he was transferred to Ceylon, which now is Sri Lanka. And um, he was given uh, uh, a case. Oh, he learned Sanskrit on the way, uh, a little bit. And he was given a case while he was in Sri Lanka uh, on ecclesiastical law. And in it, the documents were in Pali which is the language the Buddha's teachings were written down in. And he became really fascinated with the language of Pali. And then, as a good colonialist, he felt that actually the roots of British uh, ethnicity and the roots of Indian ethnicity were tangled up together, which is why academics criticize him so much now. And... um, Anyways, he's got a really interesting story that I'm not going to get into right now. Um, He died in 1922, uh, just to to date this. But anyways, here's what he says. Um, And you can really hear his kind of remarkable acumen in translating here. Etymologically, sati means memory. But as happened at the rise of Buddhism to so many other expressions in common use a new connotation was then attached to the word, a connotation that gave a new meaning to it and renders memory as inadequate and a misleading translation. It became the memory, recollection, calling to mind, being aware of certain specified facts. Of these, the most important was impermanence, the coming to be as a result of cause and then the passing away again of all phenomena, bodily and mental. And it included the repeated application of this awareness to each experience of life from an ethical point of view. 
Let me read this last part again. It included the repeated application of this awareness, of the coming and going of all phenomena, to each experience of life from an ethical point of view. Uh, in the Nikayas, there are two different formulas to illustrate the meaning of sati. Uh, the first one is in a text you can look up called the Samyutta Nikaya. This is number 48. Um, where the Buddha says there are five spiritual faculties that somebody has. Uh, shraddha, or faith, which I translate as confidence. Uh, virya, energy. Smurti, mindfulness. Samadhi, concentration. And pragna, wisdom. Uh, the Buddha says, what monks is the faculty of mindfulness? Here, the noble disciple is mindful, possessing supreme mindfulness and alertness, and is one, this part's interesting, is one who remembers and recollects what was done and said a long time ago. This is the faculty of mindfulness. Isn't that interesting? So here he's defining, so monks, what's mindfulness? It's the ability to remember and recollect what was said a long time ago. Now, for those of you who are taking the MBSR stress reduction program, this is the opposite of what they say. Don't remember anything your mom said to you. <laughs> Did I tell you about driving around in France? When I was driving in the rain, I started having all these memories of when I was 18 years old. I graduated high school. Um, I was working on DuPont Street at an auto body shop sanding cars before they were painted. Very exciting. And um, I saved up enough money to go to Europe. So the first thing I did was go to France because I have cousins. Uh, some live in Marseille and some live in Nîmes. Uh, very close to where I just was. And uh, I remembered when I was 18, I was visiting my cousin Gerard. And um, uh, we went out into his backyard. He, he had a lot of land. But, you know, sometimes the way land is divided in Europe, you can't tell where one property ends and another starts. So it seemed like he had a lot of land. But I don't know if he owned any of that land. But we walked on that land and... And he said, be very careful when you're walking because uh, you could twist your ankle. It was all weeds and brambles and bushes and broken branches. And I said, uh, why? Well, what's, what, what's going on under the, the bushes? And he said, oh, those are grooves from uh, the Romans. And I said, well, what do you mean from the Romans? He said, well, this is all limestone. So under all these grasses and brambles are the old chariot roads that the Romans used. And if you keep walking down those roads, you end up at the aqueduct that crosses over this uh, valley. And we walked along this road. You could just feel it. You couldn't see it, but you could feel it in the limestone. And it blew my mind. I think all of us here who live in Toronto we know deep down that this isn't where we're from. And we have a feeling where we're connected to this city and this country, but 
we all know that we're from somewhere else, but we convince ourselves, you know, we're Canadian. But none of us are really from here for a very long back. But I had the feeling when I was with him that, oh, people here are have been here a long time. And uh, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was 18, and all summer I kept thinking about this. How could there be Roman chariot tracks in this person's backyard? Mm-hmm. Well, I actually think this is a lot... Uh, it says a lot about meditation practice. On the surface, our minds are a complete mess. They're full of brambles and broken branches... And it's pretty hard to get through it. But when you start going through it, you can feel underneath that there is a very deep and long path. I don't know how many of you have ever sat down and had the feeling that you're taking up the posture of thousands of people who have been trying to work through uh, the real meaning of their life. And so they sit down in this way that we sit down. And, you know, not all of us have the hips to do it or the knees to do it. But still, it's an upright posture. It's not leaning on anything. Really learning how to sit still. And you get the feeling when you do this that you're part of a path that goes way, way back. And maybe it doesn't have so much a physical space. But it's like a psychic lineage. Do you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Some of you might think, oh yeah, well he might feel this, but me, I just feel crazy. So maybe in meditation, actually, we're remembering something that was said a long time ago. Or we're remembering something that human beings can feel that we forget about when we're rushing around. Or maybe it just means that mindfulness is about remembering uh, that we can be home wherever we are. That home is not actually a separate thing. But then, uh, after uh, mentioning that mindfulness is about remembering things said a long time ago, the Buddha then says... She dwells contemplating the body in the body, phenomena in phenomena, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world. This is called the faculty of mindfulness. So do you hear a little bit of confusion here? Uh, So I think this indicates that the compilers of the text were not really satisfied with a simple definition of mindfulness as memory. They had to supplement it with the definition of mindfulness as having something to do with uh, meditation practice. Um, Then, in Pali, another word is added to the commentaries that clarifies the meaning of sati. Uh, And that word is upatana. Upatana means uh, setting up or establishing. So that's where you get satipatthana. So in other words, what one does with mindfulness is they set up or establish themselves to clearly comprehend 
the object. You adopt a particular stance towards your experiences so that you can be mindful, ardent, alert, clearly comprehending. Although, as I say this, maybe the opposite's true. Maybe when you adopt a stance, um, it's actually the presence of the object that stands up rather than the subject. Um, The object makes itself more available to scrutiny So this brings up a question which I have been struggling with, which is why I'm giving this talk, which is, is mindfulness conceptual? Is mindfulness about remembering something? Remembering a path? Remembering that what you're looking at is impermanent? Remembering what you're looking at is set against a basis of ethics? These are all the things we've heard. Or is mindfulness non-conceptual? Uh... John Kabat-Zinn, in his definition of mindfulness, says mindfulness has three characteristics. An intention, so the intention to be with what's showing up. No judgment and no commentary. But actually, the Buddha is saying, when you're mindful, you're remembering things from long ago and you're comprehending them. Uh, the text also uses a few other terms. Uh, mindfulness for recollecting the Buddha, Buddha Nusati, contemplating the repulsiveness of the body, Asabhasana, and mindfulness of death, Maranasati. The translator of these uh, terms, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who I've had the good fortune of meeting a few times. Um, it's very intimidating meeting Bhikkhu Bodhi. Like, I was at a conference, and we broke up into small groups, and I had no idea who Bhikkhu Bodhi was. I didn't even know what he looked like. And we were debating something or other. Uh, this was years ago. Uh, Bernie Glassman had a conference at his farm. And, uh, had every single Buddhist teacher there. So we were sitting at a table, and we were debating something about, uh, I think, social action people were debating with Bhikkhu Bodhi. And I was thinking, everything you know about the Buddha's teaching is Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation. So it's, he's an interesting guy to debate with because he just says, no, no. <laughs> and then there's nothing you can say. <laughs> um, anyways, l- listen to what he says here. Uh, and I apologize if some of this sounds a little bit academic, but actually it's setting the stage for us to go more deeply into... Uh, Uh, a kind of examination of mindfulness. Are you with me still? Okay, just making sure. Because I'm the one with the jet lag, so I don't know if this is all slow motion. (laughs) Apart from the meditative context, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, Sati enters the noble eightfold path in another role that cannot be overlooked if we are to determine its exact meaning. This is a guarantor of the correct practice of all the other factors. The Majjhima which I just read from, draws distinctions between wrong and right versions of the path factors, from views to livelihood, right? So there's like right livelihood, wrong livelihood. I don't like right and wrong. It means like appropriate, inappropriate, <coughs> like right effort, inappropriate effort. After making each distinction, 
It then explains how right view, right effort, and right mindfulness occur in association with each part of the path. Taking right intention as an example, the text reads, one understands wrong intention as it is, and right intention as it is, and this is one's right view. One makes an effort to abandon a wrong intention and to acquire right intention, and this is right effort. Do you see how they're applied to each other? Mindfully, one abandons wrong intention, and mindfully, one acquires and dwells in right attention. This is right mindfulness. The same stipulation is laid down with regard to other factors, including speech, action, and livelihood, thus ensuring that one mindfully embraces the ethical constituents of the path. This promotes the removal of unwholesome mental qualities and the acquisition of wholesome qualities. It is only in this way that the practice of mindfulness can lay a foundation for correct, correct wisdom to arise and extirpate the roots of suffering. So one of the things that Bhikkhu Bodhi seems to be saying here is that mindfulness is a practice and a way of looking at the world that defines our actions or influences or guides our actions. In other words, mindfulness is the source of moral action. Everything we do has an impact. Our actions affect ourselves and our actions affect others. So mindfulness is actually an attitude we have for our overall lives. I think this is really true. I think that these days, as we become more scientific, we're secularizing mindfulness to the point where mindfulness just means paying attention. If you're paying attention, you're mindful. <coughs> Some of you might know that in his uh, retirement, John Kabat-Zinn is working for the U.S. military because the U.S. military has this big problem called friendly fire, which is a great term. Um, and to reduce people's mistakes, they thought, well, why not teach mindfulness? So now mindfulness is being taught in the military so that they don't make so many mistakes. And uh, then, because it was so successful, they started using mindfulness for post-traumatic stress disorder, which is also incredibly successful uh, in the military. Um, I know many people who do this work in the military. Uh, I know one woman in particular um, she is a very deep practitioner, and she works teaching uh, mindfulness to the military. She has a very beautiful face. Uh, just as I talk about her, I think about her beautiful face. And one day I said to her beautiful face, um, I don't understand how you can teach mindfulness meditation to the military. I don't get it. If somebody practices mindfulness and they really get it, how can they kill somebody? I mean, if you really sat still every day, and you softened your breathing, and you paid attention to how you're feeling, and 
you really learned how to work with all the different mind states you feel. How could you get up from that and pick up a gun and shoot somebody? So I said to her point blank, I mean, wouldn't mindfulness make soldiers not want to kill? And she said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Mindfulness and ethics can't be separated. Just paying attention to something for a long time doesn't necessarily make you love more. It doesn't necessarily make you care more. It doesn't necessarily make you want to act. Without uh, devotion, mindfulness meditation can make you dry. Without having the heart quality of caring, I think meditation can make us like cardboard. I've had that experience. I want to switch gears and read a poem. One of my favorite poets is a guy named Robert Bringhurst, who's married to my other favorite poet named Jan Zwicky. They both live on Quadra Island. Um, Here's a poem he wrote about an argument about his poetry. I presume with her, but I don't know. It's called These Poems, she said. These poems, these poems, these poems, she said, are poems with no love in them. These are the poems of a man who would leave his wife and child because they made noise in his study. These are the poems of a man who would murder his mother to claim the inheritance. These are the poems of a man like Plato, she said, meaning something I did not comprehend but which nevertheless offended me. These are the poems of a man who would rather sleep with himself than with women, she said. These are the poems of a man with eyes like a draw knife, with hands like a pickpocket's hands, woven of water and logic and hunger, with no strand of love in them. These poems are as heartless as birdsong, as unmeant as elm leaves, which, if they love, love only the wide blue sky and the air and the idea of elm leaves. Self-love is an ending, she said, and not a beginning. Love means love of the thing sung, not of the song or the singing. These poems, she said, you are, he said, beautiful. That is not love, she said rightly. I'm going to read the punchline again. Love means love of the thing sung, not of the song or the singing. These poems, she said, you are, he said, beautiful. That is not love, she said rightly. This poem, I think, is about what really matters. Love matters more than being able to track body sensations or eating a raisin very, very slowly. (laughs) In this poem, I think Robert Bringhurst agrees with the woman's charge that being in love with your own artistry is narcissistic. 
uh, your art has to lead to something more. Uh, and finding a beautiful expression for love is not the same as understanding or as being able to offer and receive love. Mindfulness, I think, is really a form of love. It's not about resting in bliss states. It's not about the end of thinking. When we see and we go on seeing and we go on seeing anupashana, we see and we look and we go and look again and look again and look again, we learn how to strip things bare. Not how to strip the things themselves, but how to strip all our presuppositions. The most famous book on mindfulness, I think, although probably now it's Mindfulness and Depression, but I used to think that the most famous book on mindfulness, and I didn't look this up on Amazon, is a wonderful book called Mindfulness in Plain English that I think many of you have probably read. Um, in that book, uh, Gunaratana defines mindfulness as a brief moment of preconceptual awareness. Here's what he says. When you first become aware of something, there's a fleeting instant of pure awareness just before you conceptualize the thing, before you identify with it. That is a state of awareness, and ordinarily this state is short-lived. It's the flashing split second just as you focus your eyes on the thing, just as you focus your mind on the thing, just before you objectify it, clamp down on it mentally, and segregate it from the rest of experience. That flowing, soft focus moment of pure awareness is mindfulness. That original moment of mindfulness is rapidly passed over, and it's the purpose of Vipassana meditation to train us to prolong that moment of awareness. Do you understand what he's saying, that preconceptual moment? A little later, he emphasizes this non-discursive, non-conceptual moment as mindfulness. And he calls it, he gives it a new name, which we've all heard from his students, bare attention. Mindfulness is non-conceptual awareness. Another term for sati, he says, is bare attention. It does not get involved with any thought or concept. It's direct and immediate and experiencing of whatever is happening without any medium of thought. It comes before thought in the perceptual process. So here we're confused again. Because now, and, and, and I, I read him because that definition probably influences more retreat centers in North America than any other definition. I've never been on a Vipassana retreat without a teacher using the term bare attention. Um, I think he's conflating two mental functions that in classical Buddhist cognition are actually distinct. One is the immediate preconceptual apprehension of an object. Do you know what's meant by that? Like that, just that moment of <clears throat> before the mind comes in and does anything. That apprehension, that moment where is ethically indeterminate. There is no morality in it at all. But 
maybe that's not what mindfulness is. Maybe mindfulness is actually, as you notice that, you begin uh, cultivating an awareness of whether what's showing up is wholesome or unwholesome. If your response is appropriate or inappropriate. I never used to like the word wholesome, by the way, and unwholesome. To me, it was like so old-fashioned. But actually now I, lo- I love that word. Uh, if something really is whole or not. Um, I'm not sure if mindfulness is meant to be non-conceptual. It does start that way. But eventually, concepts are brought in. And they're not distracting. In the Satipatthana Sutta, in the section on the body, the Buddha says... How monks does a monk exercise clear comprehension? So here again, that's not bare attention. Clear comprehension. Here, a monk acts with clear comprehension when going forward. This is, I think this is the Buddha's sense of humor a little bit. With going forward and returning, looking ahead and looking to the side, drawing in and extending the limbs, wearing her robes and carrying the outer robe and bowl, eating, drinking, chewing food, tasting, defecating, urinating, walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, speaking, and keeping silent. It is in such a way a monk exercises clear comprehension. In other words, all the time. The other uh, passage on clear comprehension that I could find... um, goes like this. How does a monk exercise clear comprehension? Here a monk here for a monk feelings are understood as they arise, as they unfold in the present, and as they pass away. So that's not bare attention. That's understanding that what you're feeling changes. Thoughts are understood as they are impermanent. Perceptions are understood as they arise, as they unfold, and as they pass away. In that way, a monk exercises clear understanding. Okay, so, to wrap up. What does this have to do with us? Mindfulness has traveled a very long way. From India to Afghanistan, Sri Lanka to China, Korea, Tibet. Um, But the journey that it's in right now might actually be the hardest and the longest. Because we really need these practices. But as they come alive on our soil, they're not coming alive in a formal religious way. Although what we're doing here might have some form, Most of the people teaching mindfulness in our culture right now do not wear robes or roksus. They're not in ochre colors or Tibetan burgundy. They're in street clothes, and they probably have fobs. We're lifting mindfulness from traditional Buddhist teachings, from monks, from nuns, from temples, from monasteries, from ethics. Mindfulness is now taught for release, but not release from the cycles of birth and death. 
but release from financial pressure and the stress of relationship and psoriasis. <laughs> I think because of the nature of our community, it's really important that we keep mindfulness practice and the overall path tied together. Mindfulness might be clear comprehension of what we're feeling, but it's also because what we're feeling has a background of a much bigger path that gives meaning to our lives. Uh, the path guides us, it strips us, it transforms us. Paying attention on its own is not enough. We need new myths. We need new fantasies. Getting your mind still is not enough. Uh, from mythos comes ethos. From the mythic comes the ethical. If you want to change a civilization, you need to change the imagination of the population. Stories are the secret reservoir of freedom. I always think our real Buddha nature is actually our imagination. Because deep down, our fantasies and our myths actually hold our emotions. Sometimes we think, oh, I feel a primal emotion. But how you feel that emotion is really tied up with culture and the stories of culture. Think about what it was like to have sex before your wedding 200 years ago. You'd have a lot of feelings about that. Now, if you have sex before your wedding, you have a lot of feelings about that. But they're not the same feelings. Because the feelings are partial, our experience of those feelings are partially constructed by our fantasy, our imagination, our cultural stories. It was really interesting in Vienna, I went to see an exhibit by the painter Lucian Freud. I don't know how many people know his paintings, but they're really incredible. Um, there were two rooms. One room was Lucian Freud, and the other room was like traditional medieval painting. And first I went to see the traditional medieval painting. And uh, you have like these bodies, you know, <coughs> laying down on the couch. And then when I went to see Lucian Freud, I realized he's doing the same thing with all his bodies. It's just they're exhausted. They've been working so hard. I don't know how many of you know his work, but you know he paints people like in a traditional pose on a couch, but they're completely exhausted. And uh, I read a book about uh, people who sat with him. I think it was written by his daughter a few years ago. And uh, he used to keep people like for two or three months sitting for his paintings uh, until they were completely exhausted, and then he'd paint them. <laughs> So our fantasies of grief uh, influence how we feel grief. Our ideas about climate change influence how we feel about the environment. So there's a background to our experience that's there all the time. So in a way, mindfulness practice is also remembering that background. It's seeing what happens in our moment-to-moment -moment experience, not just with bare attention, but against the background of impermanence, the background of the Four Noble Truths, the background of right livelihood, 
all these things that conspire to create real meaning in our life. And I think when we plug together mindfulness and devotion and care, um, a question comes up, which is what has more importance uh, in your life than you? And that's where the practice really gets going. Mindfulness is just not about your ability to pay attention better. I think the role of imagination is really underplayed in meditation circles. More on that next week. If you don't have a rich fantasy life, then you give up to convenience. Convenience is the most dangerous thing. And mindfulness is a political and ethical practice because it works against the tendency uh, to just do what's convenient. And that's why uh, when the Buddha talked about awakening, he called it going against the stream. Going against the stream of convenience. So thank you very much. That's all I have to say. Um, Maybe we can just talk for a few minutes about what you've heard uh, tonight.